Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4, you'll find this on page 228 in the Pew Bible. We're continuing our study in 1 Samuel, and I'll be picking up the reader reading after the first phrase, which actually I think properly belongs uh, with chapter 3, which we read last week. Let me ask you a question before we study God's Word. How do you handle it when life doesn't turn out the way that you expected it to turn out, when everything maybe even goes wrong? What do you do? How do you relate to God in those moments? Here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, God shows us what not to do and how not to think about him. And he'll show us the positive side, I think, through that. Let me invite you to pay attention then to God's word. 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning the middle of verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in the line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great Slaughter, For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin came from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out, 
When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, What is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, How did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons, also Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, He had judged Israel 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. Amen. This is God's word. And write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that it would be uh, 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 light uh, to our path and a lamp for our feet. Uh, We pray that by this word, you would humble us, that you would make wise the simple, that you would give joy to the heart, that you would revive uh, your people. Uh, So speak to us, we pray. Be our teacher, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The TV character, Michael Scott, the regional manager of Dunder Mifflin, the bumbling regional manager of Dunder Mifflin, of the show, The Office, had a problem. He had a car accident in the office parking lot injuring his employee named Meredith. He also had a solution to his problem and a perspective on it. He said, now you understand this is a comedy. He said, it's up to me to get rid of the curse that hit Meredith with my car. I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. Well, Israel had a problem, and it was a Michael Scott kind of problem had a massive problem. They had uh, been defeated in battle by the Philistines. And like Michael Scott, they had a solution and they had a perspective. They said, it's up to us. And they sought to use God to that end. But their self-reliance and their superstitious view of God, we're going to see these things, made things worse and not better. What kind of view of God do you have? especially as you face trouble. Let me invite you to consider this, uh, and we'll do it in three parts. In, in verses 1 to 4, I want you to see the false 
religion of the Lord's own people. In verses 5 to 11, I want you to see the defense of the Lord's reputation. And in verses 12 to 22, I want you to see the weight of the Lord's glory. In the first place, verses 1 to 4, I want you to see the false religion of the Lord's own people. Here it begins with this lost battle to the Philistines. 4,000 or so, or 4,000 die. The, the Philistines, these are newcomers to the area like Israel is. They were sea peoples. They were from the island of Crete and the Aegean Sea. And they would uh, scatter and um, conquer some of the Mediterranean sea coasts. Here they're in the area of what we now call near the Gaza. And, um, and they beat the snot out of Uh, God's people Israel so Israel very properly I think at verse 3 asks a question they come back from defeat the elders say why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines the question recognizes they appreciate that God is sovereign that that there's a question to be asked and this kind of question is is the right kind of question it's in some ways the obvious question to be asked because God is sovereign he was involved in this in some way he defeated us they say now what do they mean by this in the way that they put it do do they mean they're trusting the Lord you know Lord we know you're sovereign you're in charge of all things this ultimate uh, we will not be a victory for our enemies. We're sure of that. We know you're in charge of all things. It was your will that we should be defeated today. Why, O oh Lord? And, and what should we do, O oh Lord? Our, our personal problems invite these kinds of questions. Why has the Lord allowed this in my experience? The answer isn't always this bad thing or this thing I perceive to be a bad thing. Uh, is because I've done something wrong, right? Jesus taught that the man born blind was not born blind because either he had sinned or his parents had sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it's not inappropriate to ask, Lord, what are you doing in my defeats? And, um, and what's your deeper purpose? I, uh, and in a trusting way, say, Lord, I know in the gospel, Christians can say you're for me and you're not, not against me, but this doesn't feel like it. What do I do? What are you teaching me about yourself, my relationship with you? What do you want me to learn? Is there anything I should repent of? How do I trust you through this? These are all very appropriate questions in their way. Now, is that what Israel is asking? I, I think not. I think actually they're not trusting, they're accusing. Lord, you have failed us, I think is what they're saying. You defeated us. You fought for the other side. You could have kept us from suffering. Why didn't you? And I say I don't think it's a a heartfelt trust in the Lord because because immediately they seek to provide an answer to their own question. They seek to provide a solution to their own problem. They don't look to the Lord for his answer. They're looking to themselves. And so I don't think they were trusting them from, from him from the beginning. Uh, and, 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 you know, they didn't do some of the things they could have done. They didn't inquire of Samuel, who has now been established as a prophet in Israel. We've seen that. They didn't turn to the word of the Lord 
to get his perspective or his guidance. They didn't ask, it seems, the Lord for help. It didn't seem like they slowed down at all and prayed. And uh, they, they immediately leaped to, here's our answer. Here's what we need to do. It's not what they should have done. When life really smacks you upside the head, Solomon's words in Proverbs, which granted Solomon wasn't on the scene yet, but the rest of the Bible they had told them this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. and Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. But that's not what they're doing here. They're, I think, more ticked than trusting. And they're self-reliant. And here's where some of the false religion plays out. Notice what they do. They make their own plans to solve their own problems. They, uh, they verse 4, say, let's go get the ark. Okay, we'll come back to that. But, but this is the essence of false religion. I have a problem, and I will figure out how to help myself. I am in trouble, and my help comes from me. They did what was right in their own eyes. They turned away from God's word and the prophet of God's word to get a word from the God of the prophet. And they turned to some physical object. Uh, They turned to the ark. Verse 4, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. What's going on here? This is right out of Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, this is this kind of thing, right? In that movie, if you've seen it, uh, I'm not commending it to all the youngest, but the Nazis are hunting for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Israel because they view it as a box of immense power. They think that the army that carries it before them, right, wins all its battles. Why do they think that? Well, what is this box and why did they think that? The box is, you may recall, that, that uh, gold-covered chest that's about three and three-quarter feet uh, long, two and a quarter feet wide or, or thereabouts, which sat behind a veil in the most holy place of the temple. It was the symbol of the throne of God among his people. He didn't actually sit on it, of course, but it stood for his throne. Inside it were the Ten Commandments, the set that Moses didn't break. Uh, And so God's law was in it. There were some other things. And on top of it was the mercy seat of the place where the blood of the atoning sacrifice was placed so that the people would know that God would would pardon them. The ark symbolized at least this, the, the ruling, the speaking, and the forgiving God is among you. It was a symbol and sign of his intimate presence with his people. And that ark had had in their midst, uh, they had had some amazing experiences. You remember perhaps that when they first crossed over the Jordan River to go into Palestine, the, the priests went down into the River Jordan with the ark first, and, and then the water ceased. It, it piled up and it flowed away, and a million people walked on dry land to cross the shore. And once they were all safely across, the peace the priests gathered the ark, and they came ashore, and the waters flowed behind. Something incredible had happened, and the ark was part of that. Uh, then again, when they remember at the Battle of Jericho, uh, they couldn't win that battle on their own. The walls were too high and too thick, but God fought for them. And the way that he fought for them was he said, I want you to circle the walls uh, time and again. And seven times they circled the walls and with the ark. 
going around, and then they gave a great shout, the walls fell, and there was a great victory. So, so probably the elders have these, these pictures of power in their mind or remembrances, and so they say, this is what we need. How do we defeat the Philistines? Let's get the powerful box in front of us. We've been defeated. We want to win. Uh, if we get God's furniture, we'll get God. Uh, this is the way that they were thinking. And, of course, in thinking that way, what are they saying about God? Uh, what are they attempting to get from God? Um, they're thinking, if we bring that box into battle with us, surely the God of that box will give us the victory. Because this is his box. He has his name on this box. Surely he will honor himself in victory. Surely he won't uh, humiliate himself in defeat. After all, his reputation would suffer dramatically among the nations of the world if he doesn't win, if he doesn't win for us. And so there was this kind of pressure they were putting on God. You've got to come through for us because your name is on the line, they're saying. This is the kind of pressure. Ralph Davis mentions a story from John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, when uh, he liked to leave the White House and go down to the Potomac to swim while he was in the presidency, and he would, he, would, uh, he would walk down there and he would swim in the buff. He would strip down and, and swim nude in the, in the river, and then he'd come back, get dressed, and then go back to the White House, and once in a while he had a little problem. And one day he had a big problem. A, a, a newspaper woman named Ann Royal came down and sat on his clothes while he was out in the water. And she hollered to him, come here. And he said, what do you want? And she said, my name is Ann Royal, and I'm a newspaper reporter. And I've been trying to get into the White House, trying to get an interview, interview with you on the matter of the state bank question. And I've been turned away at every point. And I'm frustrated, and I want that interview. And so I'm sitting on your clothes. And you're not going to get your clothes until you give me the interview. And John Quincy Adams said, just go on around behind those bushes over there and allow me to get my clothes on and I'll give you the interview. Nothing doing, she said. If you try to get your clothes, I'll scream. And the fishermen around the bend will come. I have your clothes and I want that interview. And so John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, standing chin deep in water, gave the interview. Because, you might say, she had him where she wanted him. A whole lot of pressure you will do what I'm asking you to do. And, and this is in some ways the kind of pressure Israel is seeking to exert on God. We have your box. You will show up for us. You will honor your own reputation and you will save us. Now, we could stop and say, well, I mean, those ridiculous old Israelites, how crazy are they? But don't we do this kind of thing too? personally and as a larger Christian community in our own day. Let me give you seven or eight different ways, I think. One is this, hitting more closely to home. There are Presbyterians who have been known to say, those who ought to know better, uh, they'll say, you know, if the infant isn't baptized, then they don't think the infant is safe or protected by God. But isn't that verging on superstition and not faith? Uh, some people think, more broadly, that if I just go into the right church building, if I just have the right church home, if I say the right prayers, that if we follow the right liturgy, if I write, 
uh, light the right candles or have or own the right objects, uh, then everything will get right. But, but not trusting the Lord in any of that, just thinking these, these rituals or these liturgies will make things right. But religion can't save us. Uh, uh, I was just reading uh, about a, a discovery that was made and announced in uh, late February, a gardener in Israel unearthed a 700-year-old Santa Claus ring. It's a bronze ring with the image of St. Nicholas, the Greek bishop, uh, who was known for his acts of generosity. And it was a ring that was studied by uh, Dr. Tina Chikanovitz. She's an expert in Byzantine history at the Israeli Antiquities Authority, who noted that, and here's what she said, For Eastern Christians, she says, back in that day and age, 700 years ago, St. Nicholas is considered the patron saint of travelers as well as pilgrims and sailors. Quote, Christian pilgrims would carry his icon to protect them from harm. This is the very thing that Israel thought. I've got some religious object So I'm safe. I've somehow tapped the power of God by a piece of jewelry, said those pilgrims. Or by the ark, said the Israelites. It's, uh, I think, funny how the icon outlived the pilgrim. Uh, But but this is one way we do this. Or think of manipulative evangelistic practices. Um, A a classic is Charles Finney from the Second Great Awakening, who um, he would go into towns uh, to preach revivals and to seek um, to seek converts, but he would, he would set up an anxious bench in town and he would actually send agents of his into town a week or more ahead of time to sort of scout things out and get the lay of the land and pick up on the town gossip. And so he might discover that, uh, oh, the banker has some secret indiscretion he doesn't want anybody to know about. And then at the very public meeting, he would call out the banker by name and call him down to the anxious bench and then he would work him over. And, and doing all of that as a way to, to really manipulate uh, the psychology of the crowd, to, to manipulate repentance through the work of man, not trusting in God, but trusting in man and man's strategies. I think this is some of the same kind of thing. Or, or think of uh, uh, Christians using other kinds of tactic and techniques to get what we want from God. Some of you may remember uh, very clearly, some of you may own the, the book, The Prayer of Jabez. And there was, there's a short prayer in the Bible, one or two lines, called The Prayer of Jabez. Well, somebody wrote a book about it. But what they said was that if you pray this prayer word for word, your bounds will increase. It was all the rage. How to expand the bounds of your family, the, the bounds of your finances, how to, how, to, how to grow and grow and dominate more and more. It was, it was kind of all the rage, but of course, not too many people talk about that book now. Why? Because it wasn't built on ultimately trusting the Lord, but trusting a technique. And when the technique fails you and you think the Lord has failed you, you put the book on its shelf. And we do this much more readily and easily ourselves in our own private prayer times probably. We, we sort of slip into the, we have the magic God deity. Um, if I pray enough, 
or with enough volume, or if I mention the Lord's name enough in my prayer, or if I pray long enough, maybe, maybe what I need to do is have a 24-hour prayer vigil because somehow I imagine that you know, the things I might ask for at 3 p.m. are better answered if I'm asking them at 3 a.m. when I'm tired, right? Which, again, we're, look, we're not against prayer. We're not opposed to prayer. We pray. We're in favor of prayer. But we're not in favor of thinking we can control and manipulate God by the manner in which we carry out our prayer. That's superstitious. These are all the different kinds of ways we might do that. But that's what Israel's problem was. They said to us, if we've got the box, we'll win. It's a lucky charm for us. And that's not faith, it's superstitious. They weren't seeking the Lord They were seeking to control the Lord. They weren't seeking to submit to the Lord. They were seeking to use the Lord. And so I just ask us, is our heart seeking the Lord or seeking to manipulate the Lord? Are we singing in our prayers, you are worthy, O Lord? Or are we singing, Lord, you are useful to me? If you do what I expect you to do. Well, there was this kind of false religion going on in the people of God. The second thing I want you to think about is this. God defends his own reputation. The defense of the Lord's reputation. Verses 5 through 11. Verses 5 to 11. The Philistines hear the shout of Israel. They know something's going on. They inquire. They ask around. They find out that the presence of the ark is in the camp. And, uh, and they're afraid. They know something of the reputation of the Lord. They've heard of him and what he did to Pharaoh. They've kind of misunderstood things. They talk about the plagues in the wilderness, but not back in Egypt. They speak of God as gods. But they've heard enough to know something powerful, something uh, potentially uh, bad for us is here. So what did they do? They screwed up their courage and said, fight like men. You know, smoke them if you got them, and let's go get those guys. Come on. And they did, and they fought, and they won. And Israel lost not 4,000, but 30,000. And the ark was taken by the Philistines. And did you see that, verses 10 and 11, that Hophni and Phinehas died? What's going on there? Well, the Lord doesn't submit to the Israelite tactic. He's not under pressure to do what they want him to do. They can't control him. And he would rather suffer humiliation in their eyes than lead his people to a wrong view of himself. Uh, Ralph Davis again. God would rather suffer public shame and the scoffing of the world and the Philistines than let himself be used by his people for their own purposes. So often, though, I think we, our prayers go this way. Lord, we say in our hearts, if you love me, do what I'm asking. And with our words, we pray, Lord, here's how to make things better. Do this. And then we get disappointed in him when he doesn't do our bidding. Now, what am I saying? That we're not supposed to ask the Lord for things? No, I'm not saying that. Of course we are. Jesus invites us 
to ask for things. And didn't we just hear that scripture reading in John 14 just earlier where Jesus told us, whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That sounds like a blanket invitation to ask anything whatsoever, and he promises he will come through for you, and it is not that. Though he states it very boldly, Yes, he encourages us to come to God the Father through Jesus the Son. He who has seen me has seen the Father. You come to the Father through me. He encourages us to believe that God will answer our prayers. Absolutely. But we need to hold this prayer within bounds. We need to have a disposition towards this prayer like that of the Lord Jesus himself who in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, Lord, not my will but yours be done. Our prayers, in other words, I'm just saying, should be humble. Lord, I I know what I'm asking may not be the right thing. You are wiser than me. You have good purposes, even for me. I trust you, Father in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Grant that I may pray for your will to be done. Here's what I desire, Lord, but answer me according to your wisdom and goodness, not my own. But, but Israel wasn't thinking that way. They put God's honor on the line. The ark gets captured. Israel is defeated. This seems incomprehensible to the Israelites. How could God not show up and honor himself? Pause there. Did God show up and honor himself? Or did God not honor himself in this story? Well, consider, he did not honor himself the way that the Israelites expected him to. But he did honor himself, and the text tells you that. What happened? The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the two wicked priests, what happened to them? They died. They died when? On the same day. Do you you remember that from... Chapter 2, verse 34, God had said on account of their wickedness and their contempt for him, they would die on the same day. And now that is fulfilled. God defends his honor. He fulfills his own word. You see it also in the removal of Eli. Eli is now dead. His sons are removed, so they won't be high priests after him. The priest is going to move on from Eli's family into another family that also flows from the sons of Aaron which God promised in chapter 2 and 3. And more than that, the son of Phinehas, Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, I should say, the, the, the bears a son who's the son of Phinehas and the grandson of Eli. He lives while his mom dies in childbirth. But not just while his mom dies in childbirth, while 30,000 Israelites die in battle with With the Philistines. Why should 30,000 of them die and this grandson in the line of the wicked priest continue to live? Why? Because God had also promised that to Eli in chapter 2. That though he would take away the two wicked boys and though the line of priesthood would be removed, he would yet have descendants who would weep their eyes out at what had become of his family And all these things are coming true on this horrible day 
in the life of Israel because God is fulfilling His Word and honoring His promises and doing what He said He would do. Though it isn't what Israel wanted Him to do. God got His way. And on that day, He honored Himself uh, by restoring to the people something better. In acting in judgment against Hophni and Phinehas, he's actually acting in grace to the rest of the Israelites. Israelites who were accustomed to coming to the temple and having their offerings stolen, their reverence for God treated with disrespect and irreverence, mockery. And some of them, their, their daughters who were serving in the temple being slept with by the temple priests. And all of that's coming to an end with the death of these two wicked priests. And so he's acting in judgment against Hophni and Phinehas, but he's actually acting in mercy towards God worshipers. So God may be despised in Philistia for a little while by Philistines because they think they got the upper hand, but he will no longer be despised in Shiloh by his own people and priests. He defends his own reputation. And now the final thing is this, the weight of the Lord's glory. Verses 12 to 22, you have this after action report. A man of Benjamin comes running to tell the bad news. Eli hears, he wants to know more. This man tells him and he walks him through what's happened. And you know how sometimes in a, in a, in a movie, somebody gets shot and, and, the, and the first shot doesn't take them down. And then they, they show me they get shot again, and it doesn't take them down. And so they shoot a third time, and the guy's still standing. They shoot a fourth time, and he's still standing. There's like a fifth shot, and finally the guy falls to the down, down to the ground dead. Well, that's just kind of what happens here with Eli. At verse 17, the news is brought to him, and it's this. Israel has fled before the Philistines. Shot one. There's been a great defeat among the people. Shot two. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Shot three. And the ark of the covenant of God has been captured. And it's on hearing that that Eli falls. His heart breaks. He falls over backwards and his neck breaks. And there's not just his fatality, but there's the daughter-in-law's fatality in birth. She's uh, in childbirth. She's dying. The midwives tell her, don't despair. The child is alive. But she doesn't even respond to them at that point. She names the boy Ichabod, which means no glory or translated as a question, where is the glory? Some debate about that. The the glory has departed. Uh, the, The glory of Israel is gone, she's saying. The glory of Israel has gone into exile from Israel, she's saying. Why? Because the ark was taken. They've got no ark, she's thinking. The, the high priest is dead. The heirs of the high priest are dead, including my husband. The temple in Shiloh is about to be overrun by the Philistines. It plays no major picture in the rest of the Bible. Its location will eventually change to Jerusalem. And so she names her son, the glory has departed. Now let me ask you a question. Was she right in what she said? Was she right I would answer yes and no. Yes, in some ways, the outward glory is gone. She's recognizing that. 
But of course it was spoiled by the evil of the priests already. But she's wrong too, I think. The glory of God remains. The glory of God is advanced even. How? There's this little play on words. Um, The word for glory is the same word as heavy or weighty. Uh, the heaviness of God, the weightiness of God, the glory of God. Eli, it notes, was physically weighty. But God, you see, carries greater weight. He is someone to be taken seriously and not ignored by us. The weight of God's presence is not sustained among us by the presence of a weighty priest or by the presence of a weighty box but by the weightiness of his word, promising and fulfilling his saving purposes. The outward symbols of glory, of God's glory, may be absent from Israel. In fact, the ark itself, we'll see next chapter, it goes off to the Philistines. It gets batted around. uh, It comes back. But eventually, nobody really knows even what has happened to this ark. That's why the Nazis were looking for it. But because the ark was a picture of the ruling and speaking and forgiving God, and that God still lives, the glory is not gone from his people. And in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we read that in the coming of Jesus, the glory of God showed up again visibly because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen, says the apostle, his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus is the glory of God. And to be united to him is to be united to God. To have him is to have God. To see him is to see the Father. And so in the gospel, as we see Jesus with unveiled faces, we are beholding the glory of the Father in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does he... That is Jesus. Carry weight with you? Does he have importance and significance with you? Then you know that you can trust him when things go wrong. Let's pray. Father, You know the heavy hearts of your people. You know all our sorrows and sadness, frustrations with continuing sin, uh, unhappiness with this life, longing for heaven and its perfection. You know all our disappointments. You know all of our needs, all of our problems. I thank you that you are better than all those things. You are bigger than all those things. You're more important than all those things. Thank you that you do care about all those things. But thank you that you are not at our beck and call. That uh, you who are all powerful and all wise and all good, that you're on the throne. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.